Welcome to the Kickstart Garage, where we want to inspire and educate the leaders of tomorrow. Join us as we learn from the best in the business. So I'm pursuing financial independence. Um, I think when I think of money, I think more of it in terms of not what you can consume or luxury or that type of thing. I'm not someone who really indulges in a lot of luxury. I, I drive a beat up car. I have a roof over my head. It's nothing fancy. Um, I'm not into nice clothes. I'm not really into nice things. Um, as long as I have a computer screen in front of me and a roof over my head, I'm pretty much happy. Um, but money to me is more about it gives you the ability to be independent. It gives you the ability to own your time. Um, and the whole way that I approach it is I want to have enough money where it's generating enough passive income, it's generating enough capital gains, where at some point I can be completely financially independent and I don't, uh, I can completely own my time and I don't necessarily have to work for someone else. Um, I don't want to retire. I don't want to just stop working, but I would definitely like to get to a stage where I have total ownership of my time. Talk to us about that transition from, from Tony and Guy to running your own pop shop in Temple Bar, just in terms of how it felt transitioning from employee to self-employed. What was that experience like? Well, so I'm fortunate enough to have been asked to do uh, talks in Trinity and IADT. And I was a bit, I felt like a bit of an imposter as such. I was like, why would all these guys that have, are fortunate enough to go to college, have an interest in my story. And um, a couple of business students would email me and say, can I write a thesis or can I do my story on corporate versus uh, independent or something? And I didn't really understand why they would want to come to me. So I didn't have a business plan or a business model. And when I did it, essentially, I, I don't come from nothing. I come from a lot. But financially, like my mum and dad have are very hard working like my you know my mom worked for years in various jobs and then as like a full-time carer and then she became a full-time mom with six kids so she had her hands tied and my mom has actually always worked and had her kids and then my dad is an amazing chef and he's a soldier so he my dad always had two or three jobs he was like a bouncer friday saturday night and he would work in the army five days a week cooking and then he would have to uphold working in restaurants uh, part-time as well and it's it's instilled in me like my mom and dad are grafters but the the transition i lived at home i always gave up a bit of rent i i didn't really have any fear because i was told i can kind of do anything i want so when people i think go about setting up a company now or going from an employee to an employer it's not as scary as you think it is i think the more you think about it the worse it is you know it's it's like anything you know fear is I suppose feeling of the unknown, but I, I had nothing to lose, and it was so primal. If that's the the right word to use at the start, I was like, sure. My friend did a pop up shop. He's younger than me. He lives at home the same way I live at home. Asked the landlord, is there any chance I can set up a barber shop on a Saturday? So actually, you made the decision, like you were saying, uh, to start your own business when you came back from America. Um, for a lot of people, making this decision to go out on their own can be just absolutely terrifying if they haven't really done it before uh, or if they don't know anyone who's done it that, uh, that they're friends with or that's in their close circle. Did you have anyone that, that gave you the courage or the inspiration to do it? And, and if so, how did they inspire you to take the plunge? 
So, like, over the years, there's definitely been a lot of people who would encourage me and always, like, support whatever I do, regardless of what it is, be it school, be it work, setting up my own thing, sports, whatever it is. Like, the family were definitely great for everything and so much encouraging. Um, but I think, like, a lot of the inspiration for it stemmed from myself and just I've always wanted to be my own boss. I just always wanted to kind of work on my own time, make my own money. Um kind of leading into like some what kind of inspired me to do this was the pandemic was definitely one because I started this last last March and I was still working abroad but because all the bars and restaurants were closed I wasn't really working so my job really as a brand ambassador was I was going into bars and restaurants every day trying to sell whiskey once they closed we were still of course employed and being paid and I was four or five thousand miles away from home but I had nothing to do every day so I kind of just took up um well, I looked into doing my own thing, which ended out to be H2H clothing. And I realized there's like a pandemic. And then I also realized mental health is deteriorating because of the pandemic. And it has been for a number of years. And at the same time, I'm thinking, well, in six months time, I move home and I'm unemployed. So I'm kind of like, let's get the ball rolling with something. If I can do good, great. But the main kind of goal behind it, this was before I even knew it was going to be H2H was I want to be employed for when I get back and to kind of try to start my own thing. A common theme with entrepreneurs is just, you know, work, 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 hustle, 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 the kind of Gary V mentality. Um, the more the more you put in, the more you get out, that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm sure you're you're flat out juggling everything at the moment. But now that you've got a team around you, now that you're starting to scale, um, what does a day in the life look like for, for Charlie Gleason at Safe Mobility? Do you get much time off or are you just flat out every day? Um, I haven't really taken much time off in the last kind of, I, t- I took a decent break for Christmas, everyone in Zip did, um, but I suppose the, my day has changed massively in like, you know, in the last few months. So just to, sorry, just to take you back a little bit. So I finished college in 2019. I'd been working for about, for uh, on Zip for about four months before I finished college. Then I finished college and I went straight into working on Zip full time, um, obviously for free. And I was kind of working in bars on the weekend. Um, so a day in the life of that was very much like um you know during the day i was putting you know the ceo hat on like it was only me in the company but like i during the day i was putting the ceo hat on so i was going out meeting people meeting prospective investors meeting potential software partners and, and things like that or whatever it might be analytics uh anyone that could potentially help building this new scooter sharing company that was different from all of our competition and then, you know, obviously out of every meeting comes action points, you know, follow-ups and, you know, okay, I'll, I'll do that for you and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get back to you. So I do a nine to five, nine to six of, of meetings. And then in the evening, I'd put my, uh, you know, PA hat on or, or, you know, just my, you know, normal worker hat on. And I'd actually do all the things that I said someone in Zip would do, if that makes sense. So like you were kind of working, you're very much working two jobs um, and that was intense. Um, and yeah, like, but see, it was kind of, I suppose, in those early stages, so that was, I was doing that from um, from full time from May twenty nineteen until uh, May twenty twenty. So like yeah, a full twelve months um, before we got any investment, before we got uh, any other people on board. So yeah, that was fairly tough, uh, and it just means like if if you're not performing one day, the whole company's not performing. If you get me, um, so there's kind of that added pressure of like not being able to take your foot off the gas a little bit. Um, but now it's very different, you know, now, as I said, we kind of grew our team from one to 20 within six months. And, 
you know, putting structure on that was was really important. It was very messy at the start. You know, uh, you know, different people were being told, being pulled in two or three different directions, and you know, it was just a little bit messy for a week or two. Um, but we were employing multiple people nearly a week, like so. Uh, that was a little bit messy, but I suppose a day in the life for me at the moment is very much managing people uh, and communicating with people and making sure that everyone else in the team has the resources and has all the answers that they need to keep moving with their roles. Does that make sense? So, like, it's kind. Of, I've definitely got this um, mentality where, like, a leader isn't someone that uh, barks orders from the front and just you know shouts back at the rest of the team and keeps running forward. Like, I definitely think. Uh, you should lead from behind. I definitely think you should be picking people up and helping people out and, and, and being close enough to your team where you can spot when someone's having an off day or an off week. Um, and, and very much understanding that every single person is different. Understanding that every single person is motivated by different things and understanding, you know, one person might be very financially driven. Some people, uh, you know, appreciate their free time a lot more and that needs to be respected. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, th- you know, being extremely productive is really important in in the in the first in the first instance in the first you know when you're by yourself starting a business but as your team grows and as your team scales uh different things become important um you know emotional intelligence uh, empathy self-awareness they're extremely important well they're extremely important all the time but especially when you're managing other people um you know it's not about you know your skills in financial modeling anymore or you know, uh, your your ability to write long essays, it very much becomes how can you uh, motivate people? How can you have difficult com- conversations and keep people motivated? Um, so yeah, it kind of changes a little bit uh, as the team grows. It's saying uh, fail in the plan is plan the fail. And I'm sure many people are familiar with it. It was, it was drilled into me by my secondary school business teacher. Um, not having a financial plan in place or a goal really just keeps you working endlessly in this abyss without any kind of clear stopping point. And I know everyone's goals are different and everyone will have a different plan depending on their situation in order to achieve that goal. So how should they set a financial goal and what elements should they consider in their financial plan in order to achieve that goal? In addition, are there any resources that you offer or are aware of that peop- that will help individuals conduct this exercise? Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 let's run straight to the, the the service we provide. The service we provide is a financial planning service where somebody comes in for financial planning, uh, the fee is around €250. Euro. It's not for an hour, it's for your plan. So it could take 10 meetings, five meetings, generally never takes just one meeting. So we two or three hours, one of myself and one of the team. Now, why we do this is we send what's called a cash calc link. I brought this software in from the UK for the Irish market <clears throat> called Cash Calc. A client will fill in a cash calc, and it, when you fill it in, it's your name, address, date of birth, what your savings are, what your outgoings are. And we ask the clients to take about 20 minutes or 30 minutes to complete this link before I even meet them. So you pay your fee and you get this link. This link will ask you everything from literally everything with personal finance. So what you have coming in, what you have going out. Have you any savings? Have you any pensions in work? Have you any old pension plans? Have you any loans? Have you, you know, basically assets, liabilities. And then the end of it, the most important thing, and you touched on it there in fairness, uh, Sam, is that have you actually got any goals? So when someone fills in a data capture for me, it's what data capture is called, and there's no goals, I get my team to send it back to them. I say, look, there's no point to pay me if you've no goals. You know, you can have all the money in the world. You have 100 grand in the bank, 300 grand, a million, 2 million. And we get clients with, I think one of the biggest clients we got through, that was about 5.5 million in assets uh, looking for guidance. And then, you know, we get people just have maybe the children's allowance for the kids looking for a children's education fund, or else we get people that are 20 years of age 
and they want to buy an investment property and the, the plan is three years away, but we can show them what to do and how to do it because that's what we know. That's what we do. Uh, and there's an awful lot of people out there taking advice from what I would call barstool advice or someone be the auntie at the wedding or the uncle at the wedding or your mom or dad or whatever. And it's just completely changed since their generations probably. So you need to get a good financial planner to assess what your goals are and tell you how you can reach them. Rory, let's talk about, about Gillen Markets. Obviously, it's it's one thing managing your own money, but uh, a completely different mon- monster managing other people's money. When did you feel you were you were confident enough to take on that kind of responsibility? Probably around 2004, 2005, I think. It was actually, it was actually reasonably late. I mean, I was a fund manager in, um, in Eagle Star, which is now Zurich, um, for, a, uh, for a two-year period. I uh, looked after Irish and UK equities for them, and I was part of the team out there. And they were a very good team, um, you know, but, but, but looking after money in a, in, a, in a big institutional environment like that is not, not quite the same as looking after individual retail investors' money, uh, where they get very personal about it, and they have a different outlook than than the institutional environment so it, it they are two different disciplines you know and um you have to be extremely careful when you're taking on the responsibility of managing money for an individual client as opposed to just uh, playing a part in an overall institutional team if you get me because um there's an onus on you and responsibility on you to fully understand what the client's expectations are because they, they they may well well be completely different than the the, the previous client you uh, you met or took on and um and i think you have to have patience uh, understanding and um and a, a great desire to put the client first and i think if if uh, if there's a reason i started gillen markets it's probably two reasons one is one i i have a great appetite for the educational side of stock market investing or just investing full stop um so it allowed me to do that on the the one day seminars that we do and the newsletter allows me to ex, you know to to express that um that that sort of educational drive in me uh, but the, but also i have a great um interest in the client and making sure that the service is the best possible service to the clients that you take on what got you into the real estate investing space i would say actually my focus was on stocks originally i focused on and studied stocks for probably eight to 10 years or so before I had gotten into real estate. But what got me into real estate was that before I entered college or university, my father told me that I would have to pay him rent as soon as I graduated college and I started earning a salary. So I said, okay, you know, that's fair. I don't think that's an unfair request. I just didn't want to do it. And so I said, "What, what can I do to avoid this? And I said, I could move out and I could rent or I could just buy my own place. And so I told myself that I was just going to buy my own house when I graduated college. And, you know, as a 20 to 22 year old college graduate, you know, a lot of people are going to tell you you're crazy. And of course, my family did. My dad told me, my friends, my family, everybody was like, you can't do that. You know, it took us until our 40s to buy a house. And I said, you know, just like probably a lot of people that listen to this show, if you tell me no, that's just going to light an even bigger fire under me. So I just did everything I could for four years. I worked nearly full time while I was in college, saved up as much money as I could, and ended up buying my first house before I walked at my college graduation. And that turned me into a real estate investor because it ultimately turned into a house hack. I didn't know what a house hack was at the time. And it just I just kind of did it intuitively. And it ended up becoming a house hack, ended up turning me into a real estate investor. Um, I wanted to ask you, Joe, 
about your your journey so far um what have your biggest mistakes been particularly since since launching launching your own business have have there been any specific stumbling blocks that you wish you could warn the younger version of yourself about yeah, great question. Um, actually, just just to, to say somewhere for anybody listening in, like I I wouldn't class myself as one of the most successful real estate investors in Ireland. I'm I'm, I'm like I'm a drop in the ocean in comparison to the big boys out there. You know, um, there's there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of euros just sitting out there ready to be made by anybody who wants to go after it. You know, um, and and the reason why I'm saying that is I don't want anybody listening in here thinking Joe has gone too far ahead of where we're so say some dude that's sitting in his listening to this on the jog or whatever else there and he's uh he's thinking well Joe was too far ahead of me or it's easy for Joe to say that because he's at this point now what I'm saying here is relevant to somebody who hasn't started you know you just get out you do it one step at a time you you make the sales and, and you go after it you know so the mistakes that I made um I almost went bankrupt a few years ago there. Um, actually, it just popped up on my on Facebook memories there yesterday. Um, it was eight years ago yesterday that I had filmed Dragon's Den where I was on. I was pitching for a business idea and we got investment. Now, the business was an absolute failure. But but at that point in time, I was uh, I was literally on my knees because I owed the bank a load of money. It was three million quid owed to them. They wanted the money back. The properties were worth about a million quid or something. You know, we are really in a, a dark place. And uh, when you look back now, I'm like, geez, I'm glad that's behind me. Um, but just on those kind of doubtful thoughts as well that people might have before going into it. So one thing that terrifies a lot of entrepreneurs is taking risk, you know, giving up a social life, stable income and everything else in pursuit of starting your own thing. And those thoughts can be extremely fearful and overwhelming to so many. And it's easy to see why, you know, we're, we're, we're guided from the moment we start school, which creates a sense of comfort throughout our lives. There's consistently people telling us what we should do, what's right and wrong, etc. So anything that's unknown, uh, we almost instantly pull back from and seek guidance in. Um, and doing your own thing is the complete unknown. And, you know, there's very little guidance to rely on. So what advice could you offer to budding entrepreneurs that are battling these thoughts to help them get their idea off the ground? It's a great question. I always ask it as well because it's 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 the choke point that that kills. Not starting kills more businesses than anything. I think that's that's the biggest thing is that. I'm sure you guys get it as well. Like the amount of people that tell me, Oh, I've, I have a great idea for this app. I'm like, Oh, cool. Have you done it? No. You know, it's just, there, there's no way you, you just have to start. Like that's, that's the secret. Like I've asked, what are we on? Ep- we're nearly on, we're in episode hundred tomorrow. So I've spoken to what over a hundred entrepreneurs and I asked them about every single one, that question, there, there's no magic bullet. Like the, you just have to start. That's it. Like, there is a couple of ways and, and, and you can deleverage the risk. And what I mean by that is just be smart about it in terms of, I always work out three different scenarios, best case, medium case, worst case. And if I can survive the worst case, well, then that removes the fear. It's the fear of the unknown. It's like anything. It's like when you're, before you go to the dentist or, you know, you've got to meet the bank or whatever it is. The fear is always 50 times worse than when you actually go in sit down in front of them and actually have that chat or do the appointment or whatever it is, that fear will never be as bad as the actual situation you find yourself in. Because if you've done your homework and there's a lot of external variabilities in terms of, right, your idea has to be half decent, but you have to execute it well. And that's the difference. Um, Most people don't execute well. 
everyone's got an okay idea. I'd rather if an entrepreneur came to me with an okay idea, but I knew they were super executors, I'd back them 100 times as opposed to someone who came in with like the next killer idea, but they were a bit wishy-washy. They're a bit flaky. Um, if you can know that you're going to put in the graft, if you can be honest with yourself, and I think that's the key as well, is be honest with yourself and go, is it really what you want to do? Like people have this thing about entrepreneurs has been like, oh, you have so much freedom. You have way less freedom. <laughs> you have 100% less freedom than a nine to fiver. You, you have 100% less freedom because it will consume you especially for the first couple of years, it will consume you. And then if, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll find coping strategies and hopefully you'll find great people to work with you who'll help you. But um, it will consume you. So I think just being honest with yourself, number one, that's, is this really what you want? Does this, does this burn inside you? Do you really want this? Like, is this, is this your goal? Would you do this for free? That's the best question is to ask, would you do this for free? Could you do this for the next two years for free? Because chances are you might, you might have to do it. I wouldn't recommend it, but you might have to do it. So just work out your risks, work out your risk tolerance as well. Some people just aren't suited to be entrepreneurs and that's absolutely fine, but don't force yourself. Like I could never go back to a nine to five. So equally, some people should never become entrepreneurs because it just wouldn't suit them, wouldn't suit their personality, wouldn't suit their lifestyle. So be honest with yourself and know the risks. So as I mentioned, Buy Me is your your fifth business to get off the ground. And there always seems to be a common feeling among people, whether they be entrepreneurial or not, wanting to to work for themselves, uh, you know, to own their time or just do something they want to do. Um, in fact, uh, I believe you wrote an article about it on LinkedIn, how to leave your cushy nine to five and start your own business. Step one, don't quit your fucking job. <laughs> <laughs> So where do, where do great business ideas come from? Um, what's the best way to know whether or not your idea is going to work? That is the, the penultimate question, isn't it? It really is. Um, where do great ideas come from? Great ideas come from uh, the sharing of knowledge, the willingness to talk and share ideas uh, with people. That's the first, that's where, that's where ideas come from. And so many people, so many people are not willing to talk about their ideas or things that they're interested in for fear that they'll be judged uh, or worse fear that if they talk about it, then they might have to do something about it. Um, so the, where ideas come from is the, is the connectivity. Um, and, 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 and you know what really helps a pint of Guinness in a Dublin pub. Most often. And, and that's where, that's where the concept for buy me was born. Um, I was sitting in a Dublin pub and, and actually I was sitting um in the gingerman pub uh beside trinity university and uh someone said to me over a pint devon do you know that the online grocery market is worth nine billion pounds across ireland and the uk but yet it loses 300 million pounds a year and that was it i was obsessed after that i couldn't get over how such a big enormous market in two countries was so dysfunctional in nature um, and surely there was an opportunity in that dysfunction um, and that's and that that's what sent me down the rabbit hole. Um, and it was because that conversation started from me, you know, working with somebody about the idea of starting a company. And, and we were spitballing ideas left and right for about six months and um, talking about trying to find, you know, different opportunities and different market opportunities. So that willingness to connect and, and be open and talk with people about stuff. That's where that's where it starts. And um, when it comes to execution, this is the most important thing to take away here is that ideas are fucking worthless. They are worthless, um, but people treasure them and protect them like they're everything. Um, I read a great book by uh, Felix Dennis, um, who was one of the biggest publishing 
giants in in, in the UK. A, a deeply, deeply flawed man, um, but an excellent writer. And uh, he said, you know, most people think a passport, uh, an idea is a passport to worldly wealth, when in fact, it's just the application form. All the work has to go into filling it out. And really, that's the ultimate takeaway is that execution is everything. Ideas are nothing. Um, And so when you're going to go out on a journey, if you have an idea, you need to go first start off by validating. And the reason I say, you know, three steps to, to quitting your cushy corporate job um, and starting your own business. Step one, don't quit your fucking job, is that there's so much work to be done um, before that step. Um, but a lot of people think that to start a business, they have to you know, immediately pack in everything that they do. And like I said, I spent 18 months um, prepping to, to, to launch by me. I, I, it wasn't even a case that I did six months and then quit my job and, and started the business. I did six months desktop research, then quit my job, got another job to prepare for this one. So, I mean... If there was a word I would put that that it was, I was very deliberate and and quite methodical, and that's not because I'm super clever. It's because this is my fifth business. I've had four spectacular failures before this, um, and I know I know what failure looks like, um, and and I know that the reason why a, a good good part of the reason why my previous businesses didn't work out was that I wasn't prepared. Um, I hadn't taken my time. I, I I ran in head first, eyes closed, and. Uh, not surprisingly, I knocked myself unconscious a couple of times. I think it comes down to just being self-aware enough. It doesn't really come until you get a little bit older, I suppose, but to understand what's going to give me the most amount of fulfillment. Because a lot of people, they're much better just given the autonomy to work in a company where they know exactly what they need to do. They have the nine to five. They love the structure. Whereas other people like yourself who, you know, it's fair to say you're, you're an innovator, someone who's quite creative, uh, a bit of an inventor, trying to think of different ways to do things. You're going to be way more suited to trying to launch different businesses. And so obviously something you've had some success with. Uh, something that I'm fascinated by, I must say, and I think it's, it's what largely separates those that find success than those who, who would get like a too emotional when things don't go perfectly and it's it's the attitude towards failure i reckon you know failure it's fairly inevitable it's it's going to be part of your life no matter what um but you can't really achieve any sort of progress without slipping up here and there you know uh fear the fear of failure you know it's it's something that hits a lot of people um failure in general is just terrifying for for many that's why they don't try anything quite difficult to overcome even for people with that entrepreneurial streak. So I wanted to ask you, how much has failure played a part in your success in business? And, and what is your your attitude towards failure as a whole? Yeah, I mean, you're touching on something that that everybody that, you know, everybody has to think about and it's the fear of failure. And I think failure, I've reworded failure in my own brain to learning. And I think micro failures along your journey are inevitable and I think that you have to rebrand it in your head as as learnings and like I've I've gotten very good at learning (laughs) you know you have to understand that your job as an entrepreneur is to solve problems but to solve problems and put in place processes behind them to set you up for 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 growth and to set you up so that you don't make those mistakes again and i think that's the important part a lot of people might miss that where 
you know, they'll, you have to understand that you're going to make mistakes, but it's the fact that you understand that you're making a mistake, but that you're building in place a process or a structure in place that that failure, that mistake can happen again. And I think in doing that, you set yourself up for moving on and advancing to the next stage, moving into the next room, growing your business even further to the next level. And, and I think failure is inevitable. And a lot of people don't get past that. And the fear is too much for them to actually uh, take that step. And, you know, a lot of people come to me and say, that's the, that's the thing that's holding them back. So I believe honestly that you have to work with your strengths and weaknesses. And I work with my, you know, a big weakness of my, of mine is admin. Like I hate admin, anything admin, I will hold off. Even if it's tiny, I just end up, it always ends up at the end of the week, trying to get it done at the last second. And now I've put in place different structures and hired people who are really good at it. Who, and they're, they're able to, to take that over. And it's just, it's cleaned up my life a lot more. And I have a lot more time to do what I'm really good at, which is solve problems, create new ideas to propel me forward, and propel the business forward. So I think for people who have that fear of failure, that anxiety, they need to almost couple with someone who's willing to help them take that leap and to, to explain the, the risk reward Etc. And, and, and scenarios so that they're able to make that step and make that leap into maybe entrepreneurship where on their own they might not be able to do so. I remember hearing about it, um, I like the kind of in around this time last year, you know, towards the end of the summer, and I remember thinking, you know, TikTok, sure, only only kids really use that to make silly dance videos, the classic kind of boomer narrative, and then I downloaded it. And I realized, oh no, like this is, this is much, much more, you know, like I got caught in like an hour just scrolling, just letting the algorithm take over. And I thought, yeah, no, this, this app is seriously going to take over. I think that it's getting close to like a billion monthly users, which is insane. But I wanted to ask, you know, how early did you guys see TikTok being the platform for the house and, and how early did you start using it yourself? Yeah, like it's, it's funny. So many people ask this as if, like I'm Nostradamus or something like it has a, a seventh of the earth on it. So it's not as if I was the first person in the world to figure it out. Do you know what I mean? Like there's only five platforms where people spend any amount of time on social media. It's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's Snapchat, it's Twitter, it's TikTok, it's Pinterest and it's Reddit. And like, um, as you said there, it's a good point. TikTok was the most downloaded app in 2020 for like nine of the 12 months on the app store and um like the biggest grossing not grossing is the wrong word the biggest growth rate of any other app funnily enough was pinterest which i think is an under uh, underrated app that people should really check out um but in terms of tiktok like i was on it i was on it four years ago when it was called musically and uh, to be honest, I didn't get it. And at that time, it was purely based around lip syncing. Um, it's doing a lot of lip syncing now. But at that time, I could just see like 14-year-old girls lip syncing. And it was very skewed towards young girls, basically. And as time has gone on and it evolved into TikTok around the 2019 mark, um, it just was the platform where everybody was blowing up. And TikTok 
it does this thing. Like I always wonder it with these social media businesses, right? If I'm in TikTok, I'm basically wondering how can I get more people to use this app? Well, if I want more people to use the app, I'm going to need to create this sort of viral loop sensation. So I'm going to need to have it so that when somebody signs up for an account, they're going to want to get their friends to join the app. If my primary goal is for user growth. And when Facebook first started, the primary goal of Mark Zuckerberg, if you love him or hate him, was to get seven new friends to join the app within the first week. And that was the primary goal for him because he found that if you got seven of your friends to join Facebook, that you would have a high retention rate on the app and you would sort of stay there. And with TikTok, if people were to just think of how users use this, even over the past two years, I guarantee you, you've seen a TikTok on Instagram. I guarantee you someone has WhatsApped a TikTok to you. I guarantee you've seen a TikTok on Twitter. Somehow TikTok was able to growth hack in such a way that they were able to get the branding of their platform onto all the other social platforms without having to spend a dime on social media. And that is absolutely bonkers when you think of the likes of Triller, which is trying to take over stuff from TikTok, has spent millions on marketing to try and get it in front of people but it hasn't penetrated i haven't seen triller on instagram in about a year and a half because it doesn't have the same virality to it and what i think tiktok has really cracked is incredible ai and an incredible algorithm that forces there's a there's a thing that people use in silicon valley called ttl which is time to laugh and it's when you open an app it's how quickly you get a laugh out of that app. And TikTok have cracked that. Like uh, the numbers around seven seconds. If you can get someone to laugh within the first seven seconds of using the app, they're going to have this endorphin, like serotonin loop thing where they know that when they go on this app, they will get enjoyment out of it. And then they will go back to the app like a rat who's or a hamster that's running around a hamster wheel. And it knows that when it does something, it can click a fucking button and get like a pellet of food. And it does that again and again and again in a hamster wheel. And I'm essentially saying that there are a billion hamsters out there who have all downloaded TikTok. And that's why I think a platform like Clubhouse is fucked because when I go onto Clubhouse, I don't know where to go. I click into a room and I meet a conversation halfway through. There's no real like virality to it. Half the time I'm disappointed with the content. And unfortunately, if that happens on the internet, people will never go back to your app ever again. It's the exact same thing with like a software product where when you sign up for a SaaS product and it doesn't work, you cancel your free trial straight away and you move on to something else. And it's only the businesses that can get product market fit are the ones that can actually succeed. And TikTok is the app that has sort of cracked that. And at this point now, it's like, I wouldn't say it's hard for them to fuck things up, but they're in an incredible position. They're growing at a rapid rate. Facebook absolutely sucks in terms of, you know, they may be pumping out cash, but it's not a user-friendly platform. And, um, you know, one, I've been going on a massive rant here, but one other really cool thing about TikTok is that it, it basically makes people famous. And whether people want to admit it or not, if you post enough TikToks, one of them is guaranteed to get 100,000 views because TikTok have built it into their algorithm that they want to blow someone up in terms of their numbers so that they think to themselves, oh my God, I went onto this app, I posted a video and I got a lot of social value back. I was rewarded with views and likes and shares. People like me. 
Therefore, I am going to engage in this behavior again. And then you'll have a series of TikToks that won't do well. And then one will blow up again. And it constantly gets you coming back to not only consume the content, but to make the content. And that is sort of the double-edged sword of any social platform is that on the one hand, you need the content to be made and you need to encourage people to make it. And they have a very easy editor where it's very easy for you to make content. But then you also need to make sure that the content that you feed to the user is of a good quality. And they've done that through their For You page, which is you know the equivalent of like um, the Facebook algorithm giving you posts that it, it, it think it wants. So um, yeah, I think TikTok is sick. And like uh, I look forward to see what it's going to do over the next next while. Incredible story of hustle, but it sounds like all you guys have got complementary skill sets to tie it all together. So that's fantastic. Um, Dara, I actually watched your video titled um, How I Started a Six-Figure Business at 17. And one segment I related back to from doing freelancing, I'm sure Gavin would as well, is starting from zero clients and then, you know, getting a few under the belt. And as you progress, it's like usually the first couple of months are slow, but then suddenly you get this snowball effect of just, you know, constant business. How did you go about initially, you know, getting the first client under the belt um was it a case i know you were saying there just ringing up but was it like say for instance underpricing and over delivering on what you were offering i mean what was your strategy there then i suppose how did you manage the additional business that came after that first client obviously as you grow it can be, become quite challenging managing multiple projects and ensuring consistent quality yeah i really wish i had like a master strategy we started out with but it really, it was just exasperating any relationships we had, friends, family, friends of friends, family, friends, anything. We went through our entire network and just tried to get anyone to give us a shot. And like you said, they're underpriced and under, over-delivering. Like our first couple of websites were a couple hundred quid. You know, and like if you look at industry standard, that is well under what another agency would charge. But again, we were still just trying to find our feet. And, and I think by charging that and trying to utilize our network and trying to do the best job possible and to get the business owners could see they were making the effort. It, ha- it helped the snowball. But I suppose our first client was literally a recommendation. They needed a social media company. They didn't really have much of a budget. They were a local hotel and um, they kind of took the shot on us. We went in, we pitched them. We thought like we had, we had all our documents printed out. We handed them slips as we walked in and um, they gave us a shot. I think it was like 250 euros a month or something. Like it was something like it was, it was still very, very humble. But that was our first ever job we got. Uh, was that social media gig but again just ringing up businesses locally I remember I priced a job way way over what we should have charged and they said that is absolutely crazy do you want to charge that money because they were like oh how much roughly will it cost and I said I never priced it before and they ended up hanging up on me because of how much I tried to charge but again I didn't I didn't know how many hours it would take even you know now we have it a lot more fine-tuned so a lot of trial and error a lot of just chancing around if I could go back I would have started a lot more niche so we were just willing to take anything. And you'll see now that we've kind of niched down a bit, even with grafting now. But I, if I could go back, I would niche down a lot faster and just target an industry and get really, really good at that industry. But again, it was a lot of just trial and error and just seeing what stuck. Staying on real estate for now, I suppose, Terry, when, when you're looking at a property to purchase, when it is an, an investment property, would you be able to give us some of the, I suppose, like, qualitative and quantitative characteristics that you'd look for in a property you mentioned things like location and getting the the structural survey like in other words what would your overall process look like when you're uh, looking at an investment property well firstly i mean i'd be thinking about my market i mean who who is my target market for the particular property for example 
is it going to be simply a residential letting property? If it is, then to be honest with you, I'd probably be looking at either a two-bed apartment or a three-bed semi in a half-decent location with, with uh, half-decent uh, transport infrastructure and employment, you know. Other than that, it's not rocket science. I mean, it's a relatively straightforward process. What you would be very careful about is, A, ensuring that the property itself is structurally sound, that there's no issues with title or planning or anything of that nature, and B, then, I'd be very careful in terms of vetting the potential tenant. I would be getting, uh, I would be getting and I've learned the hard way, uh, references and so on and ensuring to take up the references you know um that's assuming it's a residential property if it's a commercial property that's a different situation entirely i mean you could buy for example like i did way back in you know the early or late 80s a resident or a commercial property or a mixed property which you know commercial residential and one that's perhaps closed up or gone out of business previous owner had um, had failed essentially in his business and you'd be looking at that with an entirely different viewpoint and from the perspective of perhaps getting a business into it driving it up getting it to its max or close to its max and then selling it on and obviously um you're selling a business and you're selling a property as well and the value of the property is probably enhanced as well by the fact that there is an existing uh, ongoing business in it as opposed to being just a lock, locked up uh, retail unit you know so it would depend then obviously on what age I'd be at in what in terms of my career and so on whether I would be prepared to get in and roll up the sleeves and build a business myself with a view to flipping the whole lot you know so I mean if I was looking at a shop unit now or any sort of a unit with perhaps some residential aspect to it overhead I mean if I was 23 24 25 again I'd be looking at perhaps putting in some sort of a coffee shop, maybe a sandwich bar or something of that nature, uh, working hard, driving up the turnover, making a nice, attractive proposition for a would-be investor or would-be purchaser down the road and turning it over then after two or three years, reinvesting the profits and, and going again, that sort of thing. But obviously that type of thing, A, requires a bit of imagination and B, requires energy. And, you know, when you get into your 50s, etc., and your circumstances have changed and your family are nearly reared, you're less likely to be taking on that sort of uh, work and that sort of hassle. But if I was younger again and, and uh, really hungry and motivated and so on and only had limited capital available, that's the type of thing I'd be doing. I'd be trying to uh, build some sort of a business in a, in a shop unit with perhaps a residential aspect to it and then flipping the whole lot after maybe one to three years, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. And that, that like this kind of... It's, it's it sounds like a bit of an answer to my next question so as i mentioned there's a, a there's an explosion in online training probably even more now with covid like there's probably more people coming into the online scene so um how do you manage to remain competitive i mean what are you doing that your competitors aren't doing yet well see this i always look at this in, in two ways you know people kind of look at competitors and they kind of go they get fearful they they're kind of like oh like what are my competitors doing um, what should I do in like reaction to this? But the way I look at it, I'm like a saturated market means there's money in the market, you know? And then on top of that, like cream always rises to the top. So all you have to do is be good at what you do, you know? Like literally our job is to produce results, right? That's, that's what we're getting paid to do, right? Now, obviously that takes on a, a variety of forms. It's not all just 
no, here's your six pack abs or whatever. Like for some individuals, that could be the extent of it. That's what they want, right? However, like we like to pride ourselves on being very intensive and being very sustainable focused. And, and what I mean by that is like, and I say this to pretty much all my clients and all the, the, the consultation calls we do, like I don't want a client to be on my books in five years, right? Like I don't want someone to be paying me to be their friend or to be their soundboard. I'm like, that's a, a bad relationship overall, you know? Well, again, that can definitely be part of the process. Someone might have a, a five-year goal that we're working together 100%. You know, I have clients that I've had for a long time. However, the vast majority of people, what I realistically want to do is I want to take you through an intensive 90 days. I want to get you the results that you want. Now, again, depending on the goal, depending on the position you start at, we might not get those results after 90 days, but I want to be damn certain that at the end of those 90 days, we're on the right trajectory to get the results that we're looking for, right? Then after that, the way I see it is I kind of want to transition you away from working with me. Like I want to build your confidence on in working on your own. Like I don't want you to feel that you need me to get results. I want you to feel that you are empowered and that you are able to get the results that you want because you have the knowledge that we've you know built up over these 90 days and you are confident on your own. And the way we generally do that is during the first 90 days, we'll have like weekly check-ins and you know, like WhatsApp support or Voxer support throughout. Um, and after the 90 days, we kind of move that check-in window out. So we'll do it maybe every two weeks. And then we do that for a while. And then we go, okay, let's go to every four weeks, right? And so you're only checking in once a month. And that's basically just getting away from the hand-holding, right? And we also kind of, keeping that sustainability in mind, we also kind of think to people, like, the, the approach that we take to get results might not be the uh, approach we take long-term right so again we might like i've had a recent client just i was talking to her earlier on today and we have got them to a position where they use calorie tracking calorie macro tracking to get the results right that's what they wanted they wanted to lose a bit of fat and they also wanted to maintain that for the rest of their life because they've always been able to lose fat lose the weight but they always then pile it back on because they don't have this uh, maintenance you know phase built into the program they don't have a sustainability focus in the program right so what we've done now is we've kind of started transitioning them away from tracking calories to a more portion control method right so they're now able to basically put their their diet on autopilot because they don't need to track everything. They don't need to be like really anal about every single macronutrient that they eat, every gram of food they eat. Like, no, there's a little bit more variability in here. Yes. And it's a little bit harder sometimes to, you know, keep track of that in terms of you have to live your own life. And, you know, it can be hard to stay on top of nutrition if you're not very meticulous with it, but it also allows them to keep it on autopilot and they've been maintaining their weight, you know? So like, the thing that kind of distinguishes us, at least in my mind, at least, uh, is that we put a huge emphasis on, first of all, us as coaches having a big toolbox, right? So we can help a lot of people. The second thing then is we're very much focused not just on producing like aesthetic focused results. Like again, like we, we obviously do that, but we ha- also have a focus on healthful practices with the eye to a longer term sustainable approach because ultimately again i don't want this client on my books in five years times 
Like that might be a terrible business perspective, but ultimately like that serves the client better. And ultimately I see it as a win-win because I look at it like if I help this client get the results that they want and I'm able to get them to keep the results forever, like they're going to be my greatest marketer forever. Like in five years time, when their friend says to them, oh, I've gained a few pounds. I'm thinking about getting a trainer. They're going to shout my name out. They're going to be like, yes, go to Paddy from Triage Method. He'll sort you out. He helped me out five years ago and I've been able to maintain it for since, you know, like that's what I want. I want them to be like, yes, I made a great investment at this time. Again, thinking back five years, 10 years, 20 years time, they I want them to still think that they got a skill for life and that they're going to be marketing for me effectively, you know? Thanks for listening to the Kickstart Garage. This show is for entertainment purposes only. This show is for entertainment purposes only. No one on the show has provided investment advice. The information provided by the Kickstart Garage podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The opinions and views expressed on the Kickstart Garage podcast or those of the participants do not reflect those of the host or sponsors. The Kickstart Garage, its producers, sponsors, hosts and guests shall not be liable for losses resulting from the investment decisions based upon the opinions or viewpoints presented on the Kickstart Garage.